Today's sermon is titled, The Glory to Come. And we're in Revelation 7, verses 11 through 17. We've taken three weeks to preach through Revelation 7. There's so much there, and we'll conclude that chapter this morning. Last week, though, we saw that there was a great multitude, if you remember, from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue that were bowing before the throne. Listen, in fact, to Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, just to get us a running start. Verses 9 and 10 say, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Then in Revelation 7, verses 11 through 12, where we pick up today, we'll see that the angels and the elders and the four living creatures join this great multitude in worshiping God. Listen to Revelation 7, verses 11 through 12. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory. And wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. If you notice in verse 9, it was people from all nations, tribes, uh, peoples, and tongues. And then here in verse 11, it's all the angels, the elders, and the four living creatures, which we saw earlier in the book of Revelation. But there is a focus on all. Uh, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb are worthy of all praise. There's this great focus on all. But there's also another focus on just how great this cry is, the magnitude uh, of what is being said in verse 12. If you notice the hymn there uh, that's being sung is one that begins with the word amen and it closes with the word amen. And that is actually the only hymn Uh, The only song in all of the book of Revelation that has an amen or amen at the beginning and at the end. And the significance to that is that that word that we translate in Greek as amen is basically a strong affirmation of what is being said. It could also be translated as truly. So if someone said something that you liked, you'd say truly, amen. Some of you, every once in a while, you amen something in the sermon. You hear something, you say amen. That is your way of affirming What is being said. So putting an amen at the beginning and at the end of a song like this, it's kind of like a double exclamation mark. So the image that you have is there's this great multitude with all of the angels and the four living creatures and the elders. So in other words, a great multitude that is shouting in a very loud voice. And they're bringing praise to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what we're given is kind of a glimpse into a powerful worship service that's taking place in heaven. But why is this placed at this point in the book of Revelation? It kind of seems a little random. Why is it placed in between the judgments of the sixth and the seventh seals? Well, I believe because in the midst of the judgments of God, God was giving John a vision of what awaited those who endure to the end. The child of God has glory awaiting. The judgments of God were not the end, but the glory of God is what awaits on the other side. And that brings us to our first point today, is this, glory awaits the children of God. 
And nothing on earth or in hell will thwart God's destiny for his children. You need to have that assurance today. I wrote that Thursday before Sherry Brazier passed away. How much more true is it to us this morning, especially new Neil and Sherry? There is nothing in hell or on earth that will thwart God's destiny for his children. Glory is what awaits you as a child of God. I think many people, and this is why I think this is so important, because I think many people live their lives with a fear of loss. We fear that we will lose a job and not be able to provide for our family. We fear we may lose someone close to us. We fear that we'll lose a position of influence and not be able to direct a certain situation the way we think it should go. I think that often we live with a fear of loss. Sometimes those fears are unfounded and they are either an attack from the enemy, Satan fires fiery darts at you. Sometimes he's firing the fiery dart of a fear of loss at you, trying to see if you'll take it. Other times, it is simply a lack of trust in God. You know, in your life, what, one of the things that I have learned, I'm not a journaling kind of person. When I heard about guys journaling, I kind of looked at them weird, like, what's wrong with you journaling? Writing your feelings down, what's going on? But I did the one-to-one discipleship program that we've been doing for years now at our church. And part of that is to journal things. And I become a journaler. You know why? I can look back and see in my own handwriting the faithfulness of God. I can read in my own handwriting and remember what God did and when. And you know what? We need that. We need to remind ourselves of those testimonies of God's faithfulness. So that we do not slip into that fear of loss. It's part of the spiritual battle. But other times there are fear, there is a fear of loss that simply arises out of a traumatic event. Maybe you lost someone very close to you in the past and you live with a fear that you'll lose other people close to you, that it could happen again. Maybe you lost your job in a very unexpected way. You didn't see it coming. And so you're living with the fear of loss that other things are going to be taken away from you. Look, whatever the source of the fear of loss may be, I can tell you one thing. God's not the one that's giving it to you. God does not abandon his children. God does not leave us to figure it out on our own. God does not take things from us in some mean game of chess. And so do I say that to beat you over the head today if you're struggling with a fear of loss? No, what I'm saying is if God isn't the one giving it to you, then what is implied? You can overcome it through him. It doesn't have to overwhelm you, undo you. It doesn't have to be your master. What God does is always filtered through love. It's always towards his glory and always towards our good. And so we have the promises of his word. So when you're battling this fear of loss, you must go to God's word to get the truth and know that God's always going to be faithful to his word. That's how you fight the spiritual battle. Do you remember the churches that we studied in Revelation chapters 2 and 3? They were suffering for their testimony, their faith in Jesus Christ. There were two of the seven churches that weren't rebuked by Jesus. They were ones that were really suffering persecution. But for the most part, they all at least received a warning. And there was a pattern in the messages to the churches. They all received some sort of a warning. And And they were admonished to hold fast till the end. 
But they also all received something at the end. Each of the seven churches had something as part of that pattern at the end. What did they receive? Do you remember? It was a promise to he who overcomes. You'll receive this. And it was, it was a particular blessing to each church. It was very specific to them. But it was a message that, look, hold on. Because to those who overcome in the end, you will receive the blessings that are in store for you. And you know what? I think we need that message today. We need to be reminded a little bit today that God has something in store for us at the end. He's given us great promises of what is to come. So we understand this principle through something as simple as a paycheck, right? When you go to work and fulfill your commitment to a job, you get paid for your service. Now, even if you love your job, the promise of that paycheck, it, it just helps you. It keeps you motivated. It keeps you going. Now, here's where the Christian life differs. When we stand before God and we experience all of the glory of heaven and all of the blessings to come and all of the reward of heaven, it will not be because God owes us. It will be 100% because of his grace but that's what makes it all the sweeter. That's what makes it all the more beautiful is that we can serve him now. We can work for him now. We can give our lives now. And we know there is a day coming that it's going to dwarf any payday we have. We're going to receive more than what he could ever hope or ask for. And when we receive it, we'll also know we're not worthy of it. It's all about his grace. It's about his goodness. It's about his love. It is what a good father has in store for his children. So the greatness of what awaits us, it should motivate us to some degree now. As we've been saying, if you're a child of God, you have things that your heavenly Father has in store for you that are beyond your ability to fully grasp. And nothing on earth and nothing in hell can thwart God's destiny for his children. It is secure in your heavenly Father. But let's read the rest of our passage today, Revelation 7, verses 13 through 17. Let's continue on, being at verse 13, or picking up at verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones whom come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and Serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the lamb who is in, their midst of the, in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, in verse 13, uh, the elder ask John a rhetorical question. And a rhetorical question being asked is, it's not as if the elder didn't know. This is common to prophetic and apocalyptic literature. It's his way of moving the conversation along. And then what he does in verse 14, I believe it is, yes, 14, as he describes that this multitude from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues are coming out of the great tribulation. That's who they are. That's where they're coming out. And he explains that their white robes are white, because they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A couple of things here, they're kind of odd. First, in regards to the great tribulation, 
He could be referring to the literal seven-year tribulation. Some scholars believe that. He could be referring to a picture of saints that are coming out of just the tribulation from this world that we have experienced throughout all time. But whatever your view on that, it is clear in Scripture that one day God is going to bring all of his children home. And I think that this vision in Revelation 7 is strategically placed here. This vision of heaven and those worshiping before the throne, this great multitude. Because it's helping us remember that the judgments of God on this world are not the end. Again, glory awaits the child of God. The judgments on this world are not the end, but the glory and the reward that God has in store for us. There's more to come. So persevere, hold fast, endure till the end, because glory awaits. Second, um, to be washed in the blood of the Lamb seems contradictory. If you're trying to get a white garment cleansed, you don't wash it in blood. In fact, that's a very gross image. It doesn't work. It's counterproductive. But when it comes to Jesus, everything is different when it comes to Jesus. We are spotted. We are guilty. Our garments are unclean before God. Furthermore, we can't cleanse ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves clean. In fact, the Bible describes our very best efforts at cleansing ourselves as dirty rags. I have a cousin that's a male cousin that's 10 years younger than me. And we played together a lot growing up. Uh, we played, we loved to play in the mud with our Tonka trucks and our G.I. Joes. I mean, we absolutely loved it. And our parents did not. Uh, because we seemed to have an uncanny ability to find mud wherever it would be. And so they'd leave us alone and then they'd come back and we would be head to toe. All you could see were the whites of our eyes would be buried in the mud and stuff just tore up and it would be a complete mess and we turned a mud pit this big into one that was big enough to fit both of us and everything sometimes all our parents could do was have us stand up on the driveway and hose us off before then we'd go in and and shower off and and then really get cleaned up but we were filthy and we loved it now look we don't like to admit this but in our own best efforts and outside of Jesus Christ, we're filthy. We're absolutely dirty in our sin, and often we love it. I've seen people that run to sin. Sometimes we don't even want to get cleaned up. We like our sin too much. But the grace of God in Jesus Christ is this. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is this. That no matter how dirty you are, no matter how far you have gone from God, no matter how lost you feel, the blood of Jesus can cleanse you and make you right with your heavenly Father. There is no stain that you have that is beyond the blood of Jesus. Amen? The old hymn, Nothing But the Blood, still says it wonderfully. It's kind of hard to say it any better. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The only reason that this multitude is before the throne 
is because they have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Again, that's why I think it's a, a picture, maybe, of all saints everywhere in the future. It's a foretaste of what is to come. Salvation belongs to our God, and that's exactly what he offers us in Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to God, and he's not hoarding it or keeping it to himself. He's extending it to us. He's saying, take it, and it is because of who he is and what he's done that we have a hope of heaven. It is through Jesus that we can be cleansed, and we can know that that is our future. But it is all because of Jesus. It will never be because of our good works. And that brings us to our second point today. Number two, the glory that awaits a child of God was paid for and is kept secure by the blood of the Lamb. The glory that awaits you, it's not do you at all. But Jesus has paid for your account. He's paid the balance. He paid what you owed. He's taken care of it. And he says, Father, this is now theirs. I've covered the bill. And it is kept secure through Jesus Christ, not through our works or what we do. But it is as we understand who we are and what we have in Jesus, then we will be about the works of God because that's called love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. When we understand the love of God in Jesus Christ, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the richness of God towards us in Jesus Christ, how can we do anything but love him and serve him. Again, it all comes back to Jesus. Do you remember what we said at the beginning of the book of Revelation that it'd be a study about Jesus, not just end-time prophecy, but about knowing Jesus more. Listen to Revelation 1, verses 4 through 6. Right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, listen to how it opened. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here it is, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood and who made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Again, studying the book of Revelation is not about, okay, now I've got the map of end time events so I can uh, interpret when the rapture is going to take place. That is not the point of the book of Revelation. Revelation is about who? Jesus. It's about Jesus being revealed. It's about Jesus being unveiled. It's about Jesus being lifted up, our soon coming king. And so we said at the beginning of the study is that as we walk through the book of Revelation, you will learn things about apocalyptic literature. You will learn things about end time events. You will learn things about prophecy, but it is all tied up in Jesus. You remove Jesus and it just becomes a fruitless study. But in him, man, when you are looking to Jesus, when you're seeking to know him more, then he makes all of the rest of it make sense. Let's, meet, let's read our remaining three verses one more time. We left off verses 15 through 17 just to refresh us here. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, this great multitude and all these people, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them 
to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Did you notice that um, verse 15 began with the word, therefore? It's only because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb that the things which follow then are true. Only because they've been cleansed that they serve God and that he dwells among them and that they'll never hunger or thirst anymore and the sun won't smite them. All of those things are only true of them because first it's true that they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And what we find in these verses is actually a picture of heaven. I have people ask me, you know, what will heaven be like? And I think a lot of times people grasp at straws and they listen to a bunch of shysters and people that say they've been dead and returned and let me tell you what heaven's like. And they listen to all that stuff that's just a ploy to make money and sell books. The Bible tells us what heaven is going to be like. The Bible tells us what we need to know about heaven. And this, these are a couple verses here that give us kind of a glimpse into what heaven will be like. And so let's break this down for just a few minutes, and then we'll bring our message to a close, and we'll go into our time of observing the Lord's Supper. But first, where, where is this great multitude found? Where are they? They're before the throne. Man, that's a great place to be, Right? To be in the presence of the king of the universe? I I would actually argue that there is no better place to be than before the throne of Lord God Almighty. I mean, that's it. So part of the way that heaven is pictured is we're going to be before the throne of God. We're going to get to see his full glory and his majesty, his rule, all that he is. We'll get to see that. We'll be before his throne. But second, what are they doing? It says they're serving him day and night in his what? In his temple. Now we know from Revelation 21, 22 that the future heaven, the new heavens and new earth uh, will have no temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb will be that temple. But what's being pictured here? It's work. Do you remember in Revelation 1 that I read just a moment ago? I said, they said, he has made us a kingdom of priests. That's talking about service. This is a work that actually points back to the Levites in the Old Testament, in the temple. It's good work. In fact, it's the best work you could do. It's a work that fulfills you because it's a work that you were actually made to do. Heaven is not going to be just some passive sitting on a cloud with the harps waiting for all eternity to pass. Heaven is going to involve work, but not a work that's pointless or a work that's frustrating, or a work that's boring, but it's actually going to be a work. It's going to involve a work, serving God as a kingdom of priests, doing what you were actually made, what God saw you doing in eternity past. In fact, I think it's beyond our ability to fully understand how satisfying that work will be because it's going to be us serving God in his presence, doing what he made us for. And so nothing in this world can really compare. We can get glimpses of it. We look as though through glass dimly, we get a glimpse of what it might be. You know, when you have a fulfilling day of work. But how much more so when you're actually before the throne of God doing what God made you to do from eternity past, serving him as a kingdom of priests. Did you notice the last part in verse 15? It says, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So there's this image of we're serving before the throne and he's dwelling among us. 
That Greek word that is translated here as dwell is the same Greek word as John 1.14. It's pointing back to Jesus. John 1.14, in speaking of Jesus, says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, this this concept of God dwelling in the midst of his people is important because it, it goes back to the Old Testament concept of when God dwelt in the midst of the tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes had left Egypt. They were journeying through the wilderness. And, and what would happen is God was leading them in a pillar of fire uh, in the evening, a pillar of cloud during the day. And when that pillar stopped, they would set up camp. And the tabernacle would be in the midst of the camp. So what would happen is the 12 tribes would encircle the tabernacle. So God's presence was in their midst because that pillar of fire, that pillar of cloud would come and it would rest over the tabernacle. In fact, it would rest over the Holy of Holies. And so God's presence was there visibly. And where was his presence visibly? In the midst of his people. So this imagery that we're reading in Revelation, it draws heavily upon the book of Exodus and God dwelling in the midst of his people on John 1 where Jesus came and he tabernacled and he dwelled in the midst of his creation. In fact, the rest of this image of heaven, it dwells really heavily on the book of Isaiah and Exodus. And we're running out of time to get into all of that in one sermon. But I want you to look at how heaven is described here. Look at verse 16. It says that in heaven will neither hunger nor thirst anymore. And the sun will not strike us. Again, that's pointing back to the book of Exodus where God provided for the children of Israel. It was in the midst of a wilderness that God provided water from a rock. It was in the midst of having no crops and hundreds of thousands of people that God provided manna and quail. It was in the midst of a wilderness that God led them, even providing a pillar of fire by night so that in that cool desert evening they had a source of heat and in the afternoon, when the sun was above them, they had a cloud that they followed. God's provision was all over his people. He was in their midst. So drawing upon that, one of the ways that heaven is described is this. We won't have to worry about food or drink or where our shelter will come from. Because we will not only be serving before the throne, but God will be dwelling in our midst. And this God who dwells in our midst is the one that will satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. We will not have any want. But did you notice verse 17 begins with the word for? Kind of like the therefore. So it's saying there's a reason for something. It tells us why we will not hunger or thirst. Why the sun won't strike us. Listen to the reason of verse 17. Look at verse 17 one more time. For what? The lamb. Who is in the midst of the throne will what? Will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Again, it all comes back to Jesus. The picture of heaven that we're given is that we're going to serve God, we're going to be before his throne, he is going to be in our midst, and no other person other than King Jesus is going to be shepherding us, is going to be leading us throughout eternity. The very one who gave his life on behalf of our sins and our place, dying 
on the cross that we deserve, who is risen from the grave, who is going to return one day, is also going to lead us throughout all eternity. So the reason why we will have no lack, the reason why the sun won't strike us, the reason why we won't go hungry, the reason why we won't thirst, is because Jesus himself, the Lamb, will take up shepherding us throughout all eternity. The Lamb's shepherding is described as bringing us to fountains of living waters and God wiping every tear from our eyes. And so we've, again, run out of time to dive into all that. But in the book of Isaiah, it talks about the future to come, and it uses a lot of this imagery in the book of Isaiah. Also, the Sermon on the Mount, we read some of it already. Those promises of blessings to those who endure, who wait till the end on God. The bottom line is when we're in the presence of our Heavenly Father, there'll be no want, there'll be no lack, there'll be no need. And that brings us to our third and final point today. When the children of God are in the presence of their Heavenly Father, we will lack nothing and we will receive everything a good Father has planned for us. You don't have to fear losing out on anything. Do you know what? Listen, even if you fail to experience something in this world that you'd like to experience, you don't get something checked off your bucket list. Heaven is going to blow whatever you have on your bucket list away. You're not going to get to heaven and go, I wish I would have skydived when I was 80, you know. You're going to go, this is amazing, this is far, but I need to redo my list. I want to go talk to Moses and David, and I want to worship this God, you know, God some more, and I want to be here. And I want... The things that are coming, my friends, are going to be so far beyond the things of this world. We don't have to fear any loss. Because there is no good thing that will be withheld from the child of God. And when you're in the presence of your Father, you will lack nothing. And you will receive everything that your good Father has planned for you. So I hope that this morning, that this passage can kind of give you a glimpse. I just want you to have a glimpse. Be a little bit more heavenly minded, so to say, to be looking towards that which is to come. Because I do think as we read through the book of Revelation, that keeps coming up as a theme. God wants us to have what is coming in view, to live in light of what he has promised to come. Jesus said it this way, behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the prophecy of this book. Not just hears it, but keeps it. And that's where we bring our message to a close today. It's not just about having a glimpse of what is to come for the sake of mental knowledge, of a fuzzy feeling for a few minutes. But it is to understand what we have in Jesus Christ that then motivates us, that empowers us, that strengthens us to live for Christ now without a fear of loss. Because we can have the confidence that my God will supply all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And there is coming a day when all of the bounty, all of the blessings, when all of the glory that God has reserved for me, I will get to experience. And there is no power on earth, no power in hell that will thwart God's destiny for those who are called by his name. Now the only way to become a child of God is to take him at his word. To by grace, through faith, to receive the salvation he offers in Jesus Christ. 
to realize that Jesus has died. He has risen. He is going to return one day. And has there ever been a time in your life where you have put your faith in him, where you have thrown yourself upon the mercy of God, the grace of God, and, and say, God, I can't do it myself. I can't cleanse myself, but you have provided the way that I can be cleansed, and I take it. I receive it. In Jesus' name, forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me white as snow. Cleanse me and make me your child forevermore. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what's been done to you. But God does. He even knows you better than you know yourself. And knowing you as he does, he still looks at you and says, come to me. Come to me. Believe in my son Jesus. Be forgiven. Become my child. Just a few moments, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. But before we do, we're going to sing a song of response this is an opportunity for us to prepare ourselves for that, to prepare ourselves to take the, the bread that reminds us of the body of Christ that was broken, the fruit of the vine that reminds us of the blood that was shed for us. So we have kind of a semi-open, semi-closed Lord's Supper in the sense that it's open to anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, received the Spirit, who is a child of God. We welcome you. To participate in that. And if you didn't receive one of the self-serve packets on your way in, you can go get those during the songs. It's just a few minutes. We had them by the entrances. But I would ask if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, don't observe it. Sit here. Watch what happens. But you can't come to the table of one that you don't yet know. But you know what? Right here you can come to know him. Even as we sing this song, as God is drawing, you can say, yes, I believe. I want to put my faith in Jesus. God is calling me. I, I desire for him to cleanse me through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you if you could all please stand with me. We're going to sing a, a song of response. As I said, we're, we're, we're singing to God. We're responding to his word. But we're also preparing ourselves to receive the Lord's Supper. I'm going to be down front if you would like to pray with me. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, man, let's, there's a spot right here. I got it reserved for you. I'd love to kneel and pray with you right now this morning. I'm going to be down front. I'll be praying. I'll be waiting for you. In just a few moments, I'll be back up and we'll go through the Lord's Supper together. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this moment now. Prepare our hearts. Prepare hearts for you. To remember the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that was broken and spilled for us. But also to look beyond to the hope of heaven that we have because of Jesus Christ. This morning, Lord, if there's one, two, if there's a family that's not yet put their faith in you, don't let them turn away again. May they not walk but run. May they not wait for somebody else to be first. May they be the first to come down and say, I, I need to trust Jesus. I need to be saved. Lord, we'll be quick to give you the glory for it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.